Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma. Tonight we are looking at right speech. So we've finished with wisdom and we're moving on to morality. The Buddha does say at one in one of the suttas that these are the actually the the two have to go together uh, even in the very beginning. So when when you're going to practice mindfulness, when you're going to practice meditation, First you have to do two things You have to establish yourself in morality And you have to straighten out your view So if you come to the practice with all sorts of wrong views Or if you uh, don't have proper morality Mindfulness isn't going to work And in a way you can, you can see that as you know, Adapting the Eightfold Noble Path to, to his discourse, or you can see that the Eightfold Noble—he's—he's he's describing the Eightfold Noble Path there. How they all three of them have to work together. But most uh, most expositions of the Eightfold Path or of the training begin with morality, because technically morality has to come first. If your mind is not organized, if you're distracted by. Uh, Unwholesomeness, you know, externally, then you can't possibly cultivate wholesomeness internally. Your mind won't be concentrated, and wisdom won't arise. So before we even begin to meditate, we have to be clear about the things that are going to get in the way of our practice. Speech and actions. This is the first. Speech, actions, even livelihood These things will get in the way of our practice But it's also important to note that During the practice there's no question of um, Right, uh, there's no question of wrong speech Wrong action or wrong livelihood um, so, so on the one hand it refers to this preliminary path Of rearranging your life so you're no longer killing and stealing and so on you're no longer doing bad things and you, you change your livelihood up so that it's more in line with the meditation practice. But on the other hand, it's just describing another aspect on, on the on the uh, noble aspect of things. It's just, just describing another part of the purity, meaning that a person who, who or the mind that uh, attains the noble path is... is through its purity, unable to incline towards wrong speech and wrong action. So when you're sitting in meditation, obviously you're uninclined towards all these things as well. Once you practice and 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 progress until you reach the what we call maganyana, knowledge of the path. Uh, at that moment, there's no there's a mind that's so pure that the idea of wrong speech, wrong action. It's not possible. So they, they call that a specific, there's a specific um, jetasika, an aspect of the mind, 
Um, but it's just technical. I mean, it's quite obvious that at that moment there's no opportunity to speak or to act. It's just describing another aspect of the purity. Nonetheless, for practical purposes, speech is, of course, very important. And so the Buddha uh, outlined four types of wrong speech that we refrain from. Just in general, to though to um, sort of answer the question of why do we have speech and action? Because speech is an action, isn't it? Physically speaking, from a from a physicalist point of view, of course, it's the same thing. But mentally, it's quite different. Speech is is uh, the physical act of speech is a very specific act. It has less to do with what we're doing than about what we're trying to convey. Speech is the act of transmitting information, transmitting facts, transmitting uh, ideas. It's a means of transmitting information, so it's a means of connecting with other people in a very specific way, not just in the sense of when you hit someone, you're transmitting pain, right? It's quite different from actually transmitting information. You're trying to pass on information, usually in the form of facts. And so there's a there's another level of uh, interaction more than just hitting someone. Um, when you're talking to someone, you're actually engaging with their mind. You're not just engaging with their body. And your, your purpose is not to make their eardrums vibrate. Your purpose is to uh, provide information, to affect their mind in a, in a very specific and, and, and high-level way. Anyway. The, the, why this is important, why I, I, I make all the bother to, to express that difference uh, is because it highlights the, the significance of speech. That because you're transmitting facts and information, there's another sort of potential for harm. Right? If you hit someone, well... It's fairly easy to be to to react to that, but if you tell someone a lie, which is of course one of the four bad types of speech, it's a whole other level of twisted and 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 complicated. It's a whole other type of harm. It's a very abstract sort of harm. If you tell someone a lie, and they believe it, you've affected their understanding of reality you've distorted their understanding of reality so there are four types of wrong speech lying is the first one when we talk about lying the question always comes up about withholding the truth or situations where it might not be best to tell the truth there's a Zen story that's really kind of odd to me I mean it, it seems to be a not to dis, not to speak badly of Zen, but this story, in particular, is um, 
it's meant to illustrate how sometimes you have to good people should do bad things should break the precepts should lie in this instance so this hunter is chasing after a, a, a deer let's say and there's a monk who's sitting in the forest and he sees the deer go by and it goes down one path and the hunter comes along and asks the monk where did the deer go? did you see a deer here where did the where did you see where that deer went and the monk says the monk should say is what the story says the deer went down that way when of course the deer went that way I mean this does illustrate a difference of opinion among Buddhists for some Buddhists that's the correct answer and their point being that um, the the rules are meaningless when it involves compassion and I mean the, the, the why this story is 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 strange to me is because there's no there's no need to say anything right just because and, and it's a good example of what we mean by the difference between lying and withholding the truth you don't have to tell the hunter where the where the deer went at all in fact as a skillful what the buddha would do as far as i can figure is something like engage with the man there's a story where these monks were or, sorry these men uh, when the Buddha was newly enlightened, he was wandering on his way to uh, Uruvela, and he met these. He was sitting in the forest, and these thirty young men, large group of of rich men, young men, came upon him in the forest and asked if he'd seen this woman. Now, this woman had was a, a courtesan. An escort, I think we'd call them, and uh, thirty-nine of these men had wives, and they brought their wives with them out to sport in the forest. And the thirtieth didn't have a wife, so they got a courtesan for him. And while they were all doing their thing, maybe they were sleeping, or maybe they were off swimming or something, this courtesan picked up all their jewels and ran away with them. And so they were looking for them, and they came upon the Buddha, and they said, "Have you seen this woman?" Have you seen a woman going through the forest? And the Buddha says to the, the 30 men, he says, What do you think? Is it better to search after this woman or better to search after yourselves? And they said, Better to search after ourselves, of course. And the Buddha taught them the Dhamma and they all became arahants. They became monks. They were, one of, they were some of the first uh, monks of the Sangha, first Arahant, first group. So I think something along that those lines. And this is so this is an answer to this idea of what about when when telling the truth will be harmful? Do I look fat in this dress? Well if they do, you maybe don't want to say yes. Uh, but you can find some skillful way of saying it looks fine. Or smiling at them and reassuring them. You don't have to lie to people. You shouldn't lie. I mean, and and it's important. This distinction is important. It seems like nitpicking and and splitting hairs, but if I say to you, if you say to me, "Do I look fat in this dress?" and I look at you, and indeed that dress somehow distorts your figure to make you look fatter than without when when you're wearing something else. 
um, if if I say to you it looks fine, then then you know you may get upset later on when when someone else tells you no no actually it makes you look fat. It's a silly example, but this kind of thing, right? If you if you equivocate, it might make people angry. But if you actually say to them, no. I mean, the dress fat view is a subjective thing. It's not really a good example. But if you actually tell someone that something that's a lie, like if this man says, if this monk says, uh, "Look, I don't know where the rat, I don't know where the deer is," but you know, really, for for me, it's it's a horrible thing, or you know, I wonder about this hunting, you know, something I don't know, something mindful, engaging the man and asking him what he's up to and trying to engage with the person so that they're able to get a sense of the, the horror of what they're doing. It's quite different from, you know, lying to the person, which can get you in lots of trouble. And again, it's a distortion. Lying as a rule, by principle, is, is against the Buddha's teaching. Because of this, because it distorts reality. You have to remember that in Buddhism we're very much concerned about truth. It's the core of Buddhism, truth, knowledge, clarity. When you lie, you distort that. You, you, you dishonor truth. A poetic way of saying it. So we don't lie as a rule. It's inconvenient sometimes, it certainly is. And a lot of the moral precepts are inconvenient. They do have, there, there is an awkwardness at times about them. And so it, it, it is, it's, it, there are times where keeping the precepts is actually going to disturb your concentration. It's going to f make you flustered, right? See, if it would be really easy to just tell a lie and go back to your practice. But then you, what you've done, you know, easy is... Um, breaking all the precepts makes things easy at one time or another. Again, easy is not what we're looking for. Easy is not the path to enlightenment. It's not the path to clarity and, and purity of mind. Not necessarily. It's not just because something is easy makes it good, makes it right. Even because things calm you down or pacify a situation. Sometimes you have to break some eggs and in order to make an omelette because ultimately we're concerned with this the bigger picture of this this cohesion of mind this cohesion of of our universe when we lie we distort that we destroy that and it comes back it, it affects your mind you become a liar and that's a part of who you are and it affects your personality it affects your state of mind you're no longer honoring and upholding the truth. You're no longer steadfast, committed to the truth. There's, I mean, karma is real. There is a, an aspect of reality where our act, whereby our actions and our speech affect who we are and affect our state of mind. We're constantly creating karma. And so lying is one extreme example of, of where we, we distort and disturb reality.
The second um, second type of wrong speech is harsh speech. So when we talk about harsh speech, this is speech that is out based on anger. Commentary gives some examples. You're a goat. You're a pig. You're a buffalo, I think. I don't know what they are. It's, I think you're a buffalo is one of them. In Thailand, that's a real insult. Calling someone a buffalo. You know, all, uh, insect, insults. When you insult someone, this is direct harsh speech. Obviously a big problem. It's a problem because you're hurting someone. That's going to stay with you, the scar. You can never remember having having been cruel to someone. Having told them, said something to someone, uh, hoping to cause them suffering, knowing that it would cause them suffering. I mean, sometimes we, harsh speech is not always wrong, um, or speech that appears harsh. There can be at times, uh, there can be times where you know the Buddha himself called. Sometimes he called monks moga purisa. Uh, Moga means useless. You useless man. When it's true, um, I remember a teacher, one of my high school teachers. Uh, it was really interesting. Mama, she, she certainly, I don't think, was uh, perfectly enlightened. But uh, I remember once I was listening to her talk to another student, and she said, "Andrew, you know, you're a bit of an idiot." She was scolding him because he wasn't doing his homework And she was really trying to help him I mean, in a mundane sense, it wasn't wrong speech She didn't think he was an idiot But she was telling him, you know, he, had, he hadn't done his homework And he was procrastinating And so she hit him, and she wasn't angry She was just giving him tough love, what we would call, right? So... But that's all I, about harsh speech is only this note to make that it's not always speech that appears harsh is not always wrong. It's only when your intention is to harm. Like if if this teacher had looked at him and said, I don't want to have anything to do with you, you're an idiot. Right? That would be very cruel. But when a mothers yell at their their kids, well they're usually very angry, so there's that as well. But sometimes out of love they can say things that are very harsh appear very harsh, but it's because they're concerned for their children's welfare. Um, and the third type of speech is, I've actually got them backwards, I think, but the, the third is uh, slanderous speech or gossip. Not not only gossip, but slander. And And the definition here is speech that's not meant to hurt the listener, but speech that is meant to cause the listener to um, cultivate conflict with another person. Speech that is designed to cultivate conflict. Not, not even necessarily with the listener, but speech that you tell hoping that it will cause conflict. Sometimes we just do this because we're fascinated. You know, we, 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 we tell gossip and spread stories. So sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes someone says something to us in confidence. Boy, I really hate that person. 
And then you go and tell that person, hey, they said they really hate you. Right? And it's a very simplistic example. But there's there's a story in the, in the the texts about this man who they were trying to this king was trying to to beat his enemies and he couldn't do it so he sent his advisor and his advisor managed to it's a really interesting story i won't i don't have time to go into it but um he goes around to each of these princes and he eventually manages to sow discord among them you know, that kind of thing where you break friends up even not necessarily hoping to harm it's just wrong it's so it's an example of where telling the truth is not always a good thing sometimes telling the truth can be a very vicious thing malicious i mean some people tell truth with malicious intent and they say well it's true telling the truth is often wrong in the in in the case of slant of uh Slander, I don't think, is the right word. Slander is a part of it. If I say, yeah, that person is is this and this and that. But um, I think slander is often untrue, right? The definition in English of slander is something that is not true. But this is more like uh, the Buddha said, what you've heard there, you don't say here. What you've heard here, you don't say there. So right speech is, is not this kind of a gossipy, uh, sowing discord. Someone tells you something in confidence, you do your best to discourage them from, from cultivating disharmony rather than bringing it to the other person. A good example, there's a really good example um, When the schism, the big schism uh, When the Buddha was staying with these monks And one monk left some water in a bucket One of the big head monks the left, And the, the, other, the other big head monk told him Hey, that's an offense And the other monk says, oh, okay, well then I, I, I confess it And he says, or let me confess it And he says, well, but if you didn't mean to, it's not an offense And he says, okay and he goes away. That monk goes. The other monk goes to tell his students, "Hey, the first the, the first monk uh, committed an offense, and he didn't he didn't confess it, which is of course what you have to do when you commit an offense." And so his students go and tell the other monk students, "Your teacher has an offense that he hasn't confessed." And they told, and those students told their teacher. Their teacher said, "That other monk's a liar." So those students go back and tell the other students. Your, our teacher says your teacher's a liar. And they tell their teacher, and the whole sangha splits in two, right down the middle. The bhikkhunis split in two, half of them on either side of the debate. The lay people split in two, so half of them supporting one half. Even they say, even the angels guarding the monastery were divided by this. The whole monastery split in half. When the Buddha tried to intervene, they said, go away, basically. So the Buddha left. This is when the Buddha went to the forest and was looked after by a... I've told this story before. was looked after by an elephant and a monkey. So, divisive speech, not good. 
The third, uh, the fourth type of speech is useless speech, sampapalapa. This kind of speech is not harmful directly, but it's still wrong, and it's still a hindrance to one's progress. The uh, the first type of speech, lying, is done away with at the sotapanna stage. A sotapanna doesn't lie. Once one attains sotapanna, one one keeps the five precepts. So, lying is no longer a thing. Uh, when one reaches anagami, the other two, harsh speech, divis divisive speech, these are these are done away with at uh, anagami, the third path. But only arahant, this is an interesting fact, is that only an arahant is free from sampapalapa. So it means you can be an anagami and still use, still saying things that are useless. Still engaging in idle chatter. Uh, talking about the weather. I imagine an anagami has very little of it, but the point is it's still possible. They can still worry about things, so they still might talk about the things they are worried about, right? Because an arahant is pure, everything they say is pure. There's a pure intention, a clarity of mind. There's no no useless speech. The Mahasi Sayada says you really, when you're keeping the precepts and undertaking meditation, you really have to keep all four. It's not enough to just not lie. But as meditators, we should keep in mind all four, especially the fourth one. I think is the most obviously the most difficult. It's not like we're not going to break it. It's not like if you break it, you should leave the meditation center or something but engaging in it is a big problem for yourself and for the other meditators obviously it distracts you it distracts them well, the speech is a really big deal because of this because it involves two people if you take drugs and alcohol well you're you're definitely impeding your own progress if you if you uh, even if you kill and steal well, killing is is quite, but it's, it's different, right? When you when you engage in speech, you're affecting other people, you're influencing them. So it's a special. It's not not worse than killing or stealing, but uh, it's bad in a different way because of the engagement. So, quite simply, we engage in right speech and we give up wrong speech as part of our practice not only here in the meditation center but in our lives as well so that's brief exposition on right speech path factor number three before questions we have someone who's leaving tomorrow so I thought we'd have him come and say hello. This is uh, someone who's meditated well. elsewhere. He's not. I think I'm not his first teacher. But uh, so it's it's actually less. Where is he? Can you see? Come closer. Oh. Yeah. Maybe give it a second. I think. 
lagging. Hello. Right. Yeah, it's lagging, uh, which might be a problem. I, I changed the settings. I'll change them back for the next video, but... Uh, hmm. Keyframes not being sent often enough. Oh, well. Ooh, current keyframes is five seconds. Okay, so um, tell us about tell us about your experience here. Um, Even though you you've practiced meditation before, but tell us not exactly your experience, but how you felt before you came and how you feel now, having finished the course. So the biggest thing I noticed was that the notes uh, of basically negative mental states they shortened a lot. So at the very beginning, I was noting, it seemed like sometimes hours, anger, uh, all fear, all kinds of negative mental states and towards the end and to some degree now, even though today I did a bit less meditation and I also used um, the internet on my phone, which distracted me a bit, it's, it really felt like... Um, like the negative states they shortened and they were a lot less persistent how do you feel now uh pretty good um i feel fairly balanced i would say mm. i don't feel super tranquil but i think tranquility it, it comes and goes so and i feel like i i got some insights that will persist okay there you yeah. go well good You've you've done practice before, so it's not going to be that uh, extreme the changes. But would you recommend the practice the course to someone else? Definitely, okay. definitely, definitely. Okay, well that's good. The, uh, I hope the stream's okay. YouTube's giving me all these warnings about bad video settings, but I think it's not so bad anyway. I'll just change it back next time. Okay, so let's go on to questions. Can animals be happy or only have pleasure or fear-based reactions? Um, I, mean, I don't really see the difference. Happiness... I mean, they can't be enlightened, so they can't truly be happy in a Buddhist sense, but they can experience pleasure the same way we do. And they call it happiness, just they, they conceive of it as happy, just the way we do. What are you referring to when you refer to the commentary? Well, there's a there's an established commentary to much, if not all, of the uh, Buddha's teaching. It's called the Atagatha, which means the discussion on the meaning. So that's uh, the commentary. It's also in Pali. A lot of them were written by Buddha Gosa or supposed to have been written by Buddha Gosa. But uh, most of them come from something earlier that we don't have. So they're they are dealing with older texts or maybe um, oral transmission. And they were a compilation of older teachings and older expositions. But they're... I guess they're understood to have been written down 
from zero to five hundred in the common era. Since a mind moment arises and ceases, is attachment simply a consequence that builds from an unmindful mind moment? Yeah. Not really quite. Not, I don't really quite understand the question, but it sounds yes. Attachment is a consequence. I mean, it's a consequence of a lot of things. The ignorance being the main one. Um, but it's a cause. It's caused by um, the pleasurable experience and attachment to it, or an unpleasurable experience, and then the repulsion from it. In previous video you mentioned craving leads to clinging, clinging leads to becoming. Please explain becoming. I don't quite understand what that means. So bhava. Bhava is um bhava is understood in Buddhism as kamma bhava in the sense. It's uh, action. So when we talk about bhava, what we really mean is the the mind state of craving and clinging leads to a physical manifestation of some sort. Usually in the form of doing something, right? I don't like you, so the physical manifestation is I hit you. Or I want something, so I grab for it. That's the becoming, the, the manifestation. Bhava just means being, really. Bhava means existence, or it's a very simple root. It's like the English word to be, bhava. So it, it manifests itself. You, up until that point it's been totally mental You haven't actually initiated something Kamma Bhava is when you initiate So in, in, a, in a momentary sense Kamma Bhava is the intention I'm going to hit you And then Jati, birth Is when the actual hitting comes into play Many people describe the Paticca Samapada in this way Birth is referring to the action that you do and then, of course, the result is getting getting in a fight with a person, so that's suffering. But it works on a macrocosmic level, a macro level as well. Um, when you actually die, uh, when, you, when you die, the the intention to be reborn leads to jati, leads to birth in the next be in the next realm. But Baba is the manifestation. Where it actually comes, it actually comes to fruit. Actually, creates an action. When Mara tempted the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, did it literally or physically happen, or was it only a struggle in the mind? Can this happen to us in our meditation practice, or if it was only in the mind, will we encounter the same scenario? Uh, in Buddhism, it's generally understood to be both. There is Mara in the mind, and there are Maras and beings that external to us, not exactly physical, but um, somehow exist. What happened under the Bodhi tree, I don't know. I mean, it seems to have been quite uh, embellished and elaborated, but uh, as to what actually happened, obviously, I don't know. But the idea that such beings exist seems reasonable to me. It might seem far-fetched to most, but I have no evidence. It's just something that seems reasonable. Considering how little we experience of reality, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised to know that 
wouldn't be surprised if, if I experienced, if I met with such a being. But during our practice, it doesn't really matter, because in our practice, beings don't exist. They don't exist to a meditator. To a meditator, there's only seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. I've had meditators where this has become an issue. Evil spirits come in, and malevolent spirits, uh, mischievous spirits, that kind of thing. I talked to a monk who had all sorts of spirits come to him. Uh, he had a ghost try to have sex with him once, he said. Uh, yeah. Um, so the point is, it's in the end, it's all experiences. You have these experiences, that seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. And it doesn't matter whether it's a spirit or whether it's in the mind. It's an experience. So this isn't an issue, shouldn't be an issue for meditators. It's an issue because we deal still with concepts. But once we break through that, we're invincible. There's no Mara who can get in our way. That's sort of what the Buddha story is meant to convey. This uh, imperturbability. Any tips to prepare for a six-day meditation retreat? Retreat starts in 30 days. Well, start meditating. Um, keep the five precepts at least. Try to be mindful during daily life. Um, try and try your best to pull yourself away from some of the things that uh, are going to be bad habits and during the meditation course. The thing is, don't a lot of a lot of people, a lot of Buddhists criticize our tradition because we focus so much on meditation courses, and we really don't, or we shouldn't. I mean, a good foundation course is a great way to get started, but it doesn't end there. Of course, our our course is not six days; it's uh, like twenty-one days. For that reason, we want you to really change who you are and change the way you live, so that when you leave here, you can you can live your life mindfully so that six days should be just considered to be an intensive period of meditation it's not your only meditation and building up to it is great and when you leave it continuing on with it don't think of the meditation practices or the course as your spiritual practice it's only one period that is sort of an intensifying the rest of your life is just as important And that's all the questions, so thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.